So I'm pretty fortunate because I only have to preach one time a year. And so it's uh, when Milton first asked me, I think five years ago, uh, when do you want to preach? And I thought, well, let's see, I'm kind of busy during the year. And Well, I have Thanksgiving week off, so let me preach, you know, sometime in December. Hey, let's just do around my birthday, and so we'll just do it that week. So that was the genesis of this weekend happening. But now, as he said, I'm retired, and so I have much more time to think about things. So I've been working on this for six months. But then a month ago, I changed it to a different passage. So, so the Lord is, is uh, funny in that way. He likes to have humor with us. And so um, I feel good about what the Lord has given me to encourage you guys this morning. Um, and, but I want to thank all of you. Uh, many of you guys have uh, told me that you're praying for me. Um, and just your words of encouragement uh, mean a lot. Um, I am used to speaking in public, being a teacher and administrator, um, but it's different when you're uh, with your church family. And so I know the importance of that, and I take it to heart, and I, I want to preach to you what God has given to me. I want to give a special thanks to Ben Hernandez and his grandkids. He calls the Brahmis. Uh, they aren't here this morning. They're up in uh, Idaho. Um, but Ben sent a special um, little message to me. You know, you open it up, and it's a video message. So I was excited about it. Yeah, okay, and they're going to encourage me. Hey, they have something to say to you. And so they're all lined up. They introduce themselves to me. And at the end, all in unison, don't mess up. And so, <laughs> so I really want to thank them for reminding me that, not to mess up. And that's kind of the pastor thing here. You know, uh, make, make sure you don't mess up when you're up there. But uh, we're going to look at... Um, Three parables this morning, uh, found in Luke chapter 15, and I'm sure we've all had the morning where uh, we're running late because we can't seem to find our car keys. You know, according to the lost and found survey by Pixie, a smart location solution for iPhones, I haven't used that. Has anybody used Pixie before? Pixie? Okay, so it's probably not uh, well used, but they say that they actually can show the location of misplaced objects. I know my wife has a little square thing. What's that thing called? The tile, yes, the tile that, that you can, um, you know, she can hit something. You have to remember where the other thing is to, to remember where your keys are, so I don't know. But um, this is a common occurrence with Americans spending two and a half days per year looking for misplaced items. The top misplaced item... I would think cell phone also, but they say the TV remote, and they say 71% of us lose the remote at least once a month, closely followed by phones, car and house keys, glasses, and shoes. Shoes? Really? Okay. They're counting little kids, I guess. They're not just adults. What's more, we collectively spend $2.7 billion each year replacing items. Yeah, I know that's some of you guys, all right? You had to buy that again. Uh, and, and we're just regularly late for work or church or school due to frustrating searches where we can't find something. A TV remote and even a cell phone can easily be replaced if we're willing to pay for it. But for those of you that are parents, what if it was your child? Lynette and I, my wife, uh, we were sh out shop Christmas shopping several years ago. Um, I think my daughter was around nine and my son was five. 
And uh, she stopped. We're in the mall and really crowded, people bustling around. And um, we stopped, and she stopped at a clothing rack looking at something. So I started looking at something over here, and then I started looking around, and now who would be missing? Those of you that know my son, okay? So my son is missing. Oh, no. And so, so I'm going... And I asked my daughter, hey, did you see where Thomas went? Did you see? And she's, no, I didn't see where he went. And Lynette, did you? No. And so he's gone in a mall at Christmas. And so I go, okay, you guys go that way. I'm going to go this way, and let's try to find him. And we're running around, and we come back. And I go, man, did somebody take him? Did, did, do I need to call the police? And it was just, we were panicking at that time. And, and yet then I look up on the escalator. And here's a smiling boy smiling at me coming down the escalator. And he comes and tells me, hey, Dad, I rode this three times. This is awesome. And I'm oh, you just, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And it's just, you know, all of us were relieved when we saw him. A little bit, um, you know, a few words for him about not leaving us. But just what a relief it was. But that sense of urgency that we had when we were looking for him, Thinking about the worst possible scenario, you know, that's just a small example of what God feels in searching for those that are lost and for those that have lost their way. And that's what I want to speak to you about this morning. Before opening up the scripture this morning, let's pray and ask God to enlighten his word to us all. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for today. Just thank you for a time we can gather together to worship you. We thank you for your word that instructs us and that gives us wisdom to live our lives. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Just pray that your spirit would fill each one of us to receive the message you have for us this morning. And just thank you for your generous and gracious heart toward us sinners on earth. Pray that you would use me this morning to speak your word and explain it in a way that we can understand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at three parables about four lost things. We have a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. We're also going to gain an insight into the heart of God. Please read along with me as I read from Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In our passage, Luke states that tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus. Tax collectors were seen as traitors because they collected taxes from the Jewish people to give to Rome. They were Jewish citizens that worked for the Roman Empire. Many of them charged extra taxes so they could pocket some of the money as well. They were able to live affluent lives because of their fraudulent behavior, and the people hated them for it. The sinners being spoken about in verse 1 refer to those that were devoted to sin. These could be prostitutes, drunkards, and those addicted to other vices. The word sinners could also refer to the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, whom the Jews often assumed were in that condition because of sin. Remember in John 9 how Jesus came upon a man blind, uh, born blind from birth and his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? 
This is the way people thought in this day, especially the Pharisees. So they would call these individuals unclean sinners and view them as unworthy of God's blessing. Yet these tax collectors and sinners were the ones that were flocking to Jesus to hear his teaching. What is it about Jesus' teaching that attracted them? These were the people that knew they were sinners, that knew they had a need for a Savior. And so they, they were flocking to Jesus to hear his teachings. But the Pharisees and scribes, well, they were the religious leaders of the day. They were highly respected by the people and reviewed as extremely holy. Jesus confronted their hypocrisy and challenged their system of laws and traditions. It is these religious leaders that were grumbling about Jesus receiving and eating with sinners. The Greek word for receiving is prosdekami, which was often used to speak of someone looking forward to or, or waiting for something or someone. So Jesus was being accused of looking forward to the company of sinners. He was patient with these sinners and waited for them to understand and accept his teachings. He would even socialize and dine with them. May we be accused of the same things. Jesus wants us to minister. Jesus wants to minister to both sets of people that are present. Some that are grumbling at his teachings and others that are eager to listen and accept his teaching. And what will we see this morning? And this is how we're going to break down this message, is that he brilliantly teaches three parables about loss and redemption, separation and re reconciliation. The first of these is the parable of the lost sheep that is found. Starting in verse 3, Luke says, So he, Jesus, told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Sheep need a, a shepherd to survive. It would be very difficult for them to find water and pasture for their daily needs. They also would have a difficult time defending themselves against any predators. The shepherd guides and protects the sheep. If a sheep goes missing, the shepherd feels a personal responsibility to find it and bring it back into the flock. Some of us may feel that if we still have 99 sheep, that losing one is really no big deal. That it's, but this is not the way that a shepherd thinks and is not the heart of God. This story of the lost sheep shows the supreme value God places on each individual. No one is disposable, not even the foolish one that wanders away from the group. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus then paints the picture of the rejoicing of the shepherd over the sheep that has been found. And then in verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven, and this is the, the joy of God himself, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It brings the father pleasure to see one of his children turn to him 
and away from their unbelief. In saying what he says in verse 7, Jesus takes a dig at the Pharisees and scribes when he states that there's more joy over the one that was lost than 99 righteous persons that do not need repentance. The Pharisees and scribes would have identified themselves with the 99 faithful sheep that didn't wander off. Jesus did not address their incorrect way of thinking at this moment because he didn't want those listening to miss his main point. God values the very sinners that, the, that Israel's religious elite despised. Jesus then moves to a second parable, which is the parable of the lost coin that is found. The second parable that Jesus teaches is found in verses 8 to 10. It reads, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus tells his, uh, the second parable perhaps because he sees that the first parable did not move the Pharisees and scribes. In the second parable, there's a woman that loses a coin. The word for coin indicates that it was a drachma, a Greek silver coin that was about the same weight and value as a denarius. This would be a day's wage, an equivalent to the cost of one sheep. This was a modest amount of money, but the woman set aside all other activities and dil diligently searched for it until she found it. When she finds the coin, she celebrates with her friends and neighbors. When we experience some great joy, we want to share it with others and have them enter into our joy. It increases our joy to celebrate with others. That's the way this woman felt over finding her lost coin. And Jesus then says in verse 10, In the same way... I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So not only does, God, does a repenting sinner bring joy to God, but also to the angels of God, whom he invites to celebrate with him. These two parables that Jesus has told so far about the lost sheep and that was found and the lost coin that was found are very similar, but use different main characters. They both involve a search, and they both conclude with a celebration. Jesus wants all who hear these parables, both then and now, to know that God values all people. There's no type of person that is unworthy of God's grace. Think about how this truth would land to someone that was an outcast of society, those that had previously felt forsaken by God. Do you understand why they were drawing near to Jesus? Jesus wants them to know that God has not forsaken them. He is actually searching for them because he treasures them as much as those that have not gone astray. Jesus is also instructing the religious elite that it is okay to seek the lost. The Father and all of heaven rejoice when just one lost person is found. So maybe you are here today and you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior. You have listened to these parables and have identified with the lost sheep or the lost coin. It's not by chance that you are here this morning. God wants you to know that he values you and wants to have a relationship with you. God, wants, God does not want you to walk out of here today uh, without knowing that you are not forsaken and do not have to stay lost. 
You can be found today by his grace, which is God's unmerited favor. Please ask someone to explain this all to you. And nothing would bring us or God or his angels in heaven more joy than to see you turn away from your unbelief and turn to God and live the life that he wants you to live. But there's a third parable of loss and redemption that Jesus tells us. And that is the parable of the two sons and one of whom was found. Our third parable will speak directly to the Pharisees and the scribes. They can discern what Jesus is teaching, uh, if they can discern what Jesus is teaching. Let's continue reading Luke 15, picking up in verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Now in verse 17, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me... Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is the third parable that Jesus tells. The first two have dealt with a lost sheep and a lost coin. Both are found after a diligent search and follow with a celebration. Jesus opens both of uh, those parables with a question that would help the listeners to identify with God who is searching for lost sinners. He would say, who of you, if this happened to you? However, this third parable is quite different than the first two. For starters, Jesus begins this parable in verse 11 with the words, a man had two sons. This changes everything. A lost sheep can be written off as a business loss. A lost coin could be replaced. But a lost son? He cannot be written off or replaced. Sheep wander off and coins roll away, but a son is responsible for the choices that he makes. This parable gives us a glimpse into how God deals with lost people. Estate planning in Israel was not a complicated process. A man would simply divide up his estate into equal parts, and all his sons would inherit a share of that, with the eldest son receiving a double portion and the right to succeed him as the family leader. It would be unheard of for a son to demand his inheritance while his father was still alive. 
So for this younger son to request his inheritance early was basically requesting a divorce from his father. After getting his inheritance, he would no longer have any relationship or responsibility in the family. And to be brutally honest, he is actually wishing that his father were dead. John MacArthur writes, This act pictures all sinners related to God the Father by, by creation who waste their potential privileges and refuse any relationship with him being God, choosing instead a life of sinful self-indulgence. That could be any of us. The younger son can't wait to leave his father's house and make his way in the world. So once he receives his share of the inheritance from his father, Jesus says in verse 13, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. What do you think the younger son was thinking at that time? What was drawing him into this distant land? I was recently able to attend the training center at Foothill Bible Church with one of our members here. Their mission is to train their men to serve in their home and the local church. A point that struck me uh, that night when I was there was when the pastor spoke about temptation. And he said the common temptations of men are gold, girls, and glory. And I thought about that. I said, you know, that's right. That's right. That's me. Gold, girls, or glory. And if you think about the younger son, he was tempted by all three of these as he left his father's house. So he sets out on his journey, and he now has his, his total freedom and a pocket full of cash. And so this is danger. This is dangerous right there. Okay, young man, freedom, and a pocket full of cash. And this, he's feeling like this trip is going to be everything I've dreamed of for so many years. I finally get to do this. He couldn't wait to get to this distant city and start spending his money. Well, sadly, our text continues in verse 13, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. This is a G-rated statement. The word translated squandered speaks of wasteful living. It speaks of someone throwing or scattering seed at a far distance. He is just throwing away his money. And what is he spending his money on? The Greek word Jesus uses here to speak of, uh, speaks of riotous or dissolute living. This is speaking of a person that is lacking restraint, especially in the indulgence of things such as drink or promiscuous sex. This, it is a totally debauched lifestyle. So what happens next? Young people, take out a piece of paper and a pen. Please listen to this life lesson. When you keep spending your money and you have no source of income, you become broke. <laughs> I'll wait for you to write that down. Okay, so. But you see in verse 14, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. It wasn't bad enough that he spent all his money, but now a famine, and not just a famine, but a severe famine hits the land. A famine occurs when there's an extreme scarcity of food. This causes a severe and prolonged hunger in a substantial part of the population of a region or a country. The results of this widespread malnutrition is malnutrition and death by starvation and disease. 
Historians have recorded the depths to which starving people sink to survive, including willingness to eat grass, shoe leather, garbage, and even the flesh of recently deceased neighbors. Woo. The Pharisees and scribes listening to this story would smile in agreement, thinking, yes, this is the divine judgment that the younger son deserves. Verse 14 tells us that this younger son becomes impoverished. This word has the connotation of being destitute, having lack, or suffering need. He needs finances. So in verse 15, Jesus says that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. Imagine that. The only job that he can find requires him to feed pigs. And this is a job that most Gentiles wouldn't want to do. But a Jew definitely wouldn't want to do this because pigs were unclean animals, which would leave him defiled every day that he feeds the swine. But maybe the rebellious young man didn't even mind this because the ceremony, he, he didn't even think about the ceremonial uncleanness of the swine since he had forsaken his former way of life. But the problem was that swine herding paid next to nothing, and he still lacked sufficient funds to survive. He wasn't getting enough to eat, so in verse 16, he says that he became so desperate that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. These pods uh, being spoken of here were hard, bean-like seeds encased in leathery pods, barely edible for humans, and not even the first choice for livestock. I don't know if those of you here in the audience have ever fed your dog. And so I remember as a young guy t feeding my dog and kind of looking at that food. And it was, I think it was called gravy train back then. And it kind of, you put water in it and it makes gravy and looks pretty good. And so, uh, you know, we had to try that. And so it wasn't good. Don't, don't try that. You at home, don't try that. Okay. Um, but he's saying he would gladly fill these pods, these leathery, uh, bean-like seeds, to eat those. But, I mean, it's barely edible for humans and not even the first choice for livestock. The end of verse 16 states that no one was giving anything to him. What happened to all his friends that were willing to party with him? What happened to all the girls that were laughing at his jokes and smiling at him when he had a lot of money? Where were all the people that borrowed money from him, promising to pay him back? They're all gone. Proverbs 14.20 states, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. All this young man's so-called friends departed as soon as his money did. Verse 17 opens with, but when he came to his senses, Young's literal translation states it as, and having come to himself. This is stating that his reason returned to him. Has this ever happened to you? Have you been in a bad spot and something happens and awakens you and you wonder, how did I get here? You know, none of us ever plans on getting lost. We all make plans with the thought that everything will go the way we want them to. But many times, the Lord will allow us to come to the end of ourselves to get us to, to come to our senses. This is what happened to our rebellious young man. He realizes that even the hired men at his father's house are better off than he is. 
He begins to fashion his confession to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And make, just make me as one of your hired men. It is amazing what humility will do for us. This rebellious young man realizes that he has sinned against God and against his father. He recognizes that he no longer has the right to be called a son, but that if his father will make him as one of his hired men, he would be happy enough with that. Notice that the son does not plan to say, Father, I'm sorry for making this mistake, but let me explain this to you and fill in the excuses of why he had to leave. This is not what the son is doing. He has taken responsibility for the wrong decision he made that caused tremendous hurt in his relationship with his father. He is acknowledging the consequences of his sin in that he no longer is worthy to be called his son. And this, is, this actually was the fact of the matter. He had legally forfeited his status of son by demanding his inheritance. It shows understanding, maturity, and growth that he doesn't ask to be restored as a son. He truly is coming to his senses. So after determining that he will, what he will say to his father, the rebellious son travels back to his father's house. I'm sure he was rehearsing during the trip. Okay, father, okay, uh, I'm sorry. And just practicing what he's going to say. But, you know, what do you think his picture of the reception of his father would be? For most of us, folded arms, standing at the door, shaking his head. What do you got to say to me? And we could picture that. That's what the father would do. Would his father be angry at him? Would his father not let him onto his property? Would his father give him the cold shoulder? I'm sure all of these thoughts filled the son's heart as he was walking back to his father's house. But in verse 20, we are told that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, young people... They didn't have GPS. They didn't have cell phones. Oh, let me check where you are. Oh, okay, you're only five minutes away. They didn't have that, okay? So what does that tell you about the father? Well, it tells us that the father was looking for the son, at least daily and probably hourly, always looking into the horizon. Do I see him coming yet? So he's, he's just waiting and praying for the day that the son will come, come back to him. When the father does see his son in the distance, he can't wait any longer. Because remember, he's been looking for him every day. So in verse 20, Jesus says that he felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Greek word for compassion is kind of a cool one. Splank nidzami. I have splank nidzami for you. Which literally speaks of being moved in one's bowels. The bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. And here we're told about this father's bowels literally churning in pity for his son. As a parent, I have experienced this type of compassion. To see my child go through a painful event, I feel that pain with them, especially when it has to do with a foolish choice. I may have warned them about a danger I see in their life and they disregard my counsel, it hurts me to see them suffer the consequences of their foolish choices. I hurt for them and with them. I'm sure the father in our story hurt for his son's foolish choices. 
but was still waiting for the day his son would repent and return. The father was so full of compassion that he ran to meet his son. Many of us would wait in the house with our arms crossed, waiting to hear what the son was going to say to us. Not this father. He hiked up his robe and ran to his son. Not exactly the picture of a stately paternal leader hiking up his robe and running to his son. The Young's literal translation once again says it this way. His father saw him and was moved with compassion. And having ran, he fell upon his neck and kissed him. What a picture we have here. The father falls upon the son's neck and kisses him. I'm sure there were tears of joy in his eyes. The father can't contain himself. And keep in mind that this son hasn't even spoken this confession to the father yet. Yet the father is already embracing and kissing him. It is only... It is only after the father is done showering him with this affection that the son says to him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son doesn't even get to deliver the full confession speech he had rehearsed. But the father has heard enough and immediately responds in verse 22, saying to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Everyone in Jesus' audience would understand these symbols. The robe would symbolize wealth and royalty. The ring would be a symbol of restored authority in the family, enabling the son to conduct family business with the signet ring. The sandals were given probably because he either didn't have them or they were worn out from his long travels. The father wanted his son to be well supplied, and the sandals were the finishing touch. Poor people usually didn't have shoes, and the father wanted his son to know that he was no longer poor. Think about what the son is feeling at this moment. Would he have been overwhelmed with his father's oh, he would have been overwhelmed with his father's generosity. He had no idea that the father would respond to him in this way. He couldn't even get out his full confession before his father interrupted him to give him these three symbols of restoration. In verses 23 and 24, the father exclaims, And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is what the father had been waiting and longing for. He prayed for this moment daily, which adds to his excitement and celebration. This parable has more significance because it deals with a person instead of property. The tax collectors and sinners would have identified with this rebellious son in their personal need of having their heavenly father forgive them of their sins. But what about the Pharisees and scribes? Would they be able to identify with anything in this parable? Jesus wants to give them an opportunity to respond to his teachings. So he adds more to this parable. Let's read verses 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house... He heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the the older son, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. 
And yet you have never given me a, a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. So we gather from these verses that the older son was in the field working for the family every day. He had a great work ethic and was very responsible. And these are fantastic traits for a son to have, but he lacked compassion for his younger brother, uh, younger irresponsible brother. He returns home from his labor and finds a party going on. So he grabs one of the servants to find out what is going on in the house. And after hearing that they're celebrating his brother's arrival, his irresponsible brother's arrival, he becomes very angry. His feeling of moral superiority is shown by referring to the rebellious son as this son of yours when he's speaking about him to his father in verse 30, and not my brother. His true character is revealed when he complains to his father in verse 29, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. The word for serve is dulio, which comes from the root word doulos, that is translated slave in other passages and refers to a bondage of some type. So the older son has been serving his father or slaving for his father and the family not out of love, but out of duty with an eye on what he was going to receive in his future. He has viewed his relationship with his father more as an employer than a father. His father's response should let him know that all that the father has has, is already his. The older son focused on justice for his younger brother. The father is focused on grace and forgiveness for a repentant son. The older son is focused on the fortune lost. The father is focused on a life found. In verse 32, the father explains to his complaining son that he had to celebrate and leaves the older son with a decision to make. Will he repent of his anger and join in on the celebration? Or will he continue on with his inner rebellion against his father's compassionate rule? The parable ends without giving us the answer to this question. In the first parable, the shepherd in verse 6 calls together his friends and his neighbors to rejoice with him. In the second parable, the woman in verse 9 calls together her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. Notice that both these parables use the same words suggesting that everyone responded and celebrated with them. In contrast to how the first two parables end, Jesus does not tell us the ending of the third parable. He wants the Pharisees and scribes to see themselves in the older son and repent of their grumbling against the tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. It was their grumbling and complaining that prompted Jesus to tell these two stories about things that are lost and found, and the third story about someone that is lost, repents, and returns to be found. So Jesus never tells us how the older brother ended up responding to his father's words. He leaves the story unfinished because his point was to leave the choice in the hands of these Pharisees and scribes as to what choice they would make. As we have worked through this third parable, who is it that you identify with? 
Many of us here identify with the rebellious son's need for the father's forgiveness. I pray that each of you listening to this message have realized your own selfish sinfulness and your need for a savior to save you from your sins and have come to Jesus for salvation. But as you mature in your Christian life, maybe some of us identify with the father. Many of us have been wronged and have needed to forgive deep hurts caused by those close to you. You can learn much from the example of the father in this parable. But how many of you would admit to identifying with the older son? We rarely admit identifying with the older son. Who here wants to admit that we have an arrogant sense of entitlement? Who would admit that they feel they deserve God's favor more than someone else? Who would admit that they believe that that things should go their way because of their obedience to God? Have you ever thought, why is this trial happening to me? I have been good this week. Or why is this other person being blessed than I am and they're not nearly as righteous as I am? The Pharisees and scribes would be seething with anger upon hearing the finish of this parable. They would know that Jesus was speaking to them. Jesus wanted them to repent of their moral superiority and jealousy of God's blessing going to the tax collectors and sinners. Let's say you and a friend have been living financially irresponsibly. Sound like anybody you know these days? Any, any governments you know? But each of you have accumulated $100,000 in debt. But you come to your senses, wake up, and want to do something about it. So you attend a Dave Ramsey conference. And you decide to attack your debt. You make sacrifices and cut back on your spending Your friend, on the other hand, continues to spend irresponsibly and ends up doubling his debt. You continue to be disciplined in your spending and soon you've cut your debt to $50,000. Your friend invites you to dinner one night. And so you go to dinner with him and while you're eating, he shares with you an amazing thing that happened to him. His aunt passed away and left him $300,000. He can pay off his debt and still have $100,000 left over to keep spending. How would you feel? You have been sacrificial in your spending, so disciplined to get your debt down. And yet your friend has done the exact opposite, continued to spend irresponsibly, and his debt is taken care of. It's not right that he or she is out of debt. You are the one that has been disciplined and sacrificial. This is a small illustration of what the Pharisees and scribes were feeling towards the sinners and tax collectors. This would also be what the older son feels when he is corrected by his father, when the father states to him, all that is mine is yours. The father being so gracious to the older son when he says this is not based on anything that the son has done. He owns everything because he is his son. It is not something that he can earn. It is a gracious provision from his father. All three of these parables are talking about God seeking and saving of a lost person. The last of these parables deals with a lost son who wakes up, repents, and returns to his father's house. This would would represent someone that awakens spiritually to see his lostness and accepts Jesus' free gift of salvation to enter the father's house in heaven. But I'd like to propose to you a question. 
Is this the only type of return this parable is speaking about? So once we are saved, do we no longer wander and lose our way? I think if each one of us are completely honest, we would all agree that there are seasons in our life when we do wander and get lost. Jeremiah 2.13 states it this way, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Many times we leave our first love of Jesus and try to find enjoyment and satisfaction apart from God. So I don't know where you are this morning, but if you are in a season where you are lost and have lost your way, I plead with you to wake up, learn from the rebellious son, and stop running away from the father. The only thing you need to do is repent and turn back to God. At that moment, the Father will run to you and receive you back into his arms. And I want you to realize that it doesn't have to be some huge life change that causes us to lose our way. We lose our way every day when we choose to sin and go our own way. Every time we get angry, we are losing our way. Every time we allow our eyes to view something lustful, we are losing our way. Every time we lie about something, we are losing our way. And Jesus wants us to know something about his Father. As soon as you repent and turn away from your sin and turn towards God, he forgives you. He is eager to forgive and restore your relationship with him. But what if you are identifying with the older son? How do we get rid of our sense of moral superiority or self-entitlement? If you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, I'm sure you all know the answer to this question. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that you are a sinner deserving hell and judgment. Remind yourself that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for you so you could have your sins forgiven. Remind yourself that Jesus, the Messiah, took God's entire wrath against your sin on himself and satisfied the justice of God. Remind yourself that you've been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. And remind yourself that you did not earn this. This is a gracious gift from God to you. This should shift your thinking to things that are true about God and about yourself. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in any, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Preaching the gospel to yourself fits every one of these categories and will keep you on the right path. So as I end, on, end this message, I want to stress to you that God is eager to forgive you. You may be far away from him, but he is looking out into the distance, waiting to see your silhouette as you return. All you have to do is repent and turn to him. If you do that, he will run to you, hugging and kissing you, even before you get the words of your confession out of your mouth. And he will happily welcome you home. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful picture of your love for us, your gracious and generous heart towards us. As we sin and we repent, you wake us up and we repent and we turn to you. 
you run to us. You don't wait for us. You, right when we turn, you are there hugging and kissing us. We thank you for that great picture that you've given us in this parable. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your words that bring us so much comfort. Please bless them this week as we travel through our week. Thank you for this time again. Thank you for your word. We just ask that you would multiply it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.